So yeah, if you haven't been here, it's been the better part of three and a half years. We've taken some, some stops. We went through the, the book of Romans for several months, and now we're going to jump back into the kingdom, and we will be done by the end of the year and uh, finish this walk, or maybe more like crawl through, uh, through, the, through the book of Matthew. Um, but I was on a, a, a flight last week to, to Phoenix, and on the plane, I was reading an article on uh, Bigfoot hunting. We got any Bigfoot hunters in here? Um, it's, apparently, it's called Sasquatching. I was like, that is good to know. Bigfoot hunting is not a thing. It's Sasquatching. I just thought, like, man, I would hate to be in that crowd and not get the right terminology, you know, and look bad. So uh, it's not Bigfoot hunting. It's Sasquatching. But uh, I was reading about just uh, people who are into that, like their annual trips you can go on. There's millions of dollars spent every year on cameras to record stuff going on in the wild, and you can even join the Bigfoot Field Research Organization if, if that's your thing. Uh, but in the article, it's talking about ways to communicate with, um, with these creatures. Uh, one of the main ways is tree knocking. Apparently, that's how they communicate. The best tool is a wooden axe handle, so you like uh, knock on a tree, and then maybe they knock back. I don't know. Uh, there's also special howling and growling. Um, one of the ways they communicate, too, is through objects. So you leave interesting objects. You go out in the wild and just leave interesting objects. And so uh, what the article says is make sure it's not something that would be uh, enticing to animals, right, just something that humans would find interesting. So uh, you know, maybe you leave kitchen utensils, and if you go back and it's gone, then like, that's their way of saying, like, I'm interested in you, too. And so like, th these are all things that are, that are known to be done. Uh, according to the article, I thought this was really important. Um, this is helpful for me. They know where the cameras are, which is why we don't get a lot of sightings of them, because they're, they're always hiding from the cameras. I was like, of course, that makes perfect sense. Um, you also only hunt at night, because their, lights, their eyes emit light. And so you see it's like red or yellows or whites, because of course, if you've ever been out in the middle of the night and had eyes looking at you, they're never red um, of any other animal. Uh, but apparently, that's one way that you can know that you've seen uh, Bigfoot. So I was reading this article, and I was just thinking, like, man, to, to probably most people, we're thinking, like, no way. Like, don't waste your time. Don't waste your money. Don't waste your life. You're chasing this thing, and it's, and it's foolishness. There's 11% of Americans believe that Sasquatch is, is a real thing. And so if you're part of the 11%, you really don't care what the other 89% think or believe because this is something that you believe. And because you believe it, this is something that you're willing to alter your life for in pursuit of him or her. And what you believe about Bigfoot will determine whether or not you pursue him. And what you and I believe about Jesus will determine whether or not we pursue him. What we believe about Jesus, if you believe that Jesus is everything he said he is and can and will do everything he said he can and will do, then it doesn't matter what anybody else believes. It doesn't matter what, any, what anyone else thinks they can prove. It doesn't matter what anyone else uh, is skeptical of. We believe that the person and work of Jesus is true. And I believe that and I want you to believe that. And that's what sparked the decision to go through the book of Matthew. Because Matthew was written to a group of, of people who largely didn't believe it. Matthew was written to Jews. Matthew was written and he elevates Jesus as the sovereign king. Essentially what the book of Matthew does is it's saying to the Jewish community, you guys missed it. Like this was the guy. Jesus was everything he said he was. He, he can and will do everything he said 
that he will do, and you guys missed it. And so Matthew is written in such a way that it is elevating Jesus as, as the king. And so Matthew declares that Jesus is the king, and then he spends 28 chapters giving his evidence. It's almost like sitting in a court case where someone's on trial and Jesus is on trial for being the king. And Matthew says, here is all of the evidence that I have to present. And when you look at all of the evidence, can you walk away and still not believe that Jesus is the king, that Jesus is the Messiah? And what you and I believe about Jesus is going to determine whether or not we follow him. And from the very beginning of the book of Matthew, Matthew puts all the cards on the table and says, this is what I believe about who Jesus is. In the first verse of Matthew, Matthew 1.1, it says, this is the, a record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. That's really important. Those, those are two significant names in Hebrew culture. Abraham would have been significant because it would have tied him back to the promise would have tied Jesus back to the promise that God made to Abraham all the way back in the book of Genesis when he said, if you will follow me, I'll make you a great nation. And in you, all nations, or that word actually means families or ethnicities of the world will be blessed. It was referring to when Jesus would show up. So there was, there was a link between Abraham and the Messiah. But then also he links David in there. David was the king. And so he's making a link of royalty. He's saying that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Christ, but Jesus is also the son of God. He's also the son of David. He is set up to be established as the king to rule and reign over the kingdom that Jesus came to establish. And so Matthew, from the very beginning of the book and all the way through the book, we've seen this theme. And it's important for us today to take a step back and talk about where we've been, because if you don't understand where we've been, you're not gonna, what's going to happen over the last week of Jesus' life isn't going to make as much sense. We gotta know, we've got to see where we've been if we want to understand where, where we're about to go. And so Matthew declares that Jesus is the, the sovereign king and that the kingdom is here. The kingdom is a, is a theme all throughout Scripture. The kingdom of God is mentioned 160 times in the New Testament. Of those 160, 40 of them alone come from the book of Matthew. This is a word and this is a theme that Matthew continued to come back to. The kingdom of God is defined as the redemptive reign of Christ, that, that you and I were, were redeemed, that the word redeemed means to buy something back. In the first century Greek culture, it most often referred to the purchase of a slave's freedom. But think about it in, in our culture today. You can go to a pawn shop, and a lot of the stuff that's in a pawn shop is things that were just sold. But there are things in there that are in there, but they can't sell them yet because someone came in with a possession and they gave it to the, to the pawn shop as collateral and got cash back. But there's a certain amount of time, you know, whether a month, two months, whatever it is, there's a, a certain amount of time that they have that they can buy that, that thing back. Which is a beautiful picture of what happened with us. God created us in this perfect environment in the Garden of Eden. God created man without sin. But man, Adam and Eve, chose to do the one thing that God told them not to do. They chose to eat of the tree, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God told them, the day you do that, you will begin to die. And when they ate of that tree, they chose sin and they chose self over community with God. And as a result, it created separation. And this separation existed until Jesus showed up. Jesus came into this world in Colossians chapter Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, it says, 
that he, speaking of Jesus, has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. So there was separation that existed between us and God and Jesus stepped into this world. He purchased our freedom with his own blood. Jesus lived, died, was buried, and rose again to pay for our sins to reconcile us back to God. And in doing so, when you and I put our faith and trust in Jesus and Jesus alone, we are transferred from the kingdom of darkness and we are transferred into the kingdom of his dear son, the kingdom of Jesus, the kingdom where Jesus is the king. And so the citizens of the kingdom are those who have been redeemed. Those of us who have put our faith in Jesus and Jesus alone to save us from our sins. The territory of the kingdom, we've talked about this before, you can't really, you can't really define it. It's not on a map. There's no geographical boundaries. So what we say here is the territory of the kingdom is anywhere what King Jesus wants to happen is happening, that is the kingdom. So we get glimpses of it. Right, right. When, when we choose to, to forgive one another, we get glimpses into this kingdom. When, when love is our instinct, when generosity is our norm, when serving is our privilege, when we serve one another with a nothing beneath me mentality, just as Jesus has served us, when we do that, we get these glimpses of the kingdom. And wherever what King Jesus wants to happen is happening, that is where the territory of the kingdom is. And as I said before, if we're going to understand where we're, gonna, where we're going, we've got to stop and take a, a step back and look at where we've been. So I'll talk to you a little bit about how Matthew has written. This is, this is review day. This is my least favorite day in school growing up. The teacher would be like, all right, we're going to review for the test. And I'm like, great, I didn't listen the first time. I'm certainly not going to listen the second time. Uh, but we're going to go back and, and talk a little bit about where we've been because I think it's, it's critically important to understand where this thing is going. Because a lot of times when we read books of the Bible, like you read the Gospels, I don't think we read them, it's not intentional, but we often don't read them through the, the correct lens. Like we don't understand the purpose of the writer. And so understanding the purpose will help us get a better image and picture of what he's setting up and showing us Jesus is. And so the book of Matthew is written around five key pillars of teaching. So basically what Matthew did is he took these teachings of Jesus and he arranged them and in and out of that, he weaves narratives. He tells stories about the life of Jesus, miracles he did, things like that. But the five pillars of teaching, the, the first one is the most famous, is the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. The second one is when Jesus is sending out the 12 in Matthew chapter 10. The third one is parables of the kingdom, Matthew 13. The fourth is the church, Matthew 18. And then the fifth is end times in Matthew 24 and 25. We haven't gotten there yet, we will. Uh, in the next few weeks. But each of these teachings, each of these sections conclude with a variation. It says something like this, when Jesus had ended these sayings. So Matthew makes a clear distinction. The teaching portion is over, and now we're going to jump back into, into some different narratives. So when you get into the book of Matthew, the first four chapters of the book are introducing Jesus as the Messiah, Jesus as the King, and Matthew is giving, some, some, giving us some necessary backstory. It's like any good movie, you watch a good movie, you want to know what's the backstory. I love the Batman movies. And the first question I asked the first time I watched it is, how did he become Batman? I mean, why, why not something cooler like Wolfman or Lion Man, which I guess probably be Lion King. Uh, but like, why didn't he come up with something cooler than that? There must be a connection to bats. And so 
in the, the Batman movies, they make that connection and they show you this link that he had with bats, which helps us understand why he is now Batman. So for you and I to believe and embrace that Jesus is king, there are certain prophetic things that Jesus had to fulfill. And so Matthew tells some of that, some of that backstory, establishing that Jesus connected all of the genealogical pieces that were necessary, showing us where he was born, which was, which was prophetic as well. The part where Jesus was baptized and God the Father, it says the heavens opened and the Father spoke and said, this is my son, in him I am well pleased, and the Spirit descended like a dove. All of these things are critical Parts of the backstory. Jesus launching into his public ministry. And then in Matthew chapter 5, verse 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus declares and announces the kingdom, and then he talks about the principles of the kingdom. He says, in my kingdom, it's going to look different. But this is what it's going to look like to be a citizen of my kingdom. This is how my citizens live. And then after, at the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, we get into what I think is the arguably the two most important chapters in the book of Matthew, Matthew 8 and 9. So Matthew is writing to establish that Jesus is the king and that because Jesus is the king, he possesses absolute authority. In fact, if you look at the very end of the book of Matthew, one of the last few verses, Jesus says, all power, all authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. Well, you can't just say you have that, you have to establish it. Matthew can't just say that Jesus is the king and everybody walks away. He has to give some, he has to pitch his, pitch his case. And so that's what he does in Matthew 8 9 is he shows Jesus possessing authority over many significant things. And in Matthew 8 and 9, it's not chronological. These are put there very specifically by Matthew to continue to come back to, the, to this theme that Jesus possesses authority. So Matthew 8 and 9, you have things like Jesus exercising authority over the law of Moses. You have him exercising authority over storms. That's the passage where the, the disciples are in the boat and they freak out and Jesus commands and rebukes the winds and the wave and, and everything just goes calm. And the disciples are in the boat and they say, what type of man is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? Up until this point, up until that point, they were following a rabbi. They were following a teacher. They were following a humanitarian, maybe a humanitarian that had done some miracles. But for, for the, the Jewish people, and really us today, the only one who has a total authority over weather is the divine. And so they're in that boat, and they go, wait a second. This man is exercising authority over nature. Is it possible that he is more than just a man? They show Jesus exercising authority over sin, over demons, even over death, over incurable disease. And Matthew 8 9 is where we see Jesus check all three of the boxes of the Messianic miracles. The rabbis had taught for centuries that when the Messiah showed up, he would do three things. Number one, he would, he would cure, uh, he would heal the lame. Number two, he would cure and cast out a man that possessed a mute demon. In all of the encounters with, with the demonic, you see conversations happening. Jesus, Paul, talking to them and then casting them out. Well, this is a man that couldn't speak, and Jesus still was able to cast the demon out without even addressing it by name. That was a significant box that was checked by Jesus. And every time these happened, it would be like, man, could this be the guy? Is it possible this is the one that we've been looking for? And then the third one was that the Messiah would be able to cure leprosy. The first miracle in Matthew chapter 8 that's recorded is Jesus curing a man that had leprosy. 
which what is significant about that is hundreds of years earlier when God gave the law of Moses, in the law, God had a provision included that would have been for someone that was cured of leprosy. Leprosy was an incurable death sentence. But God had written into the law that if you thought you were cured, these were the steps. You go before the priest, you jump through all these hoops in order to be declared clean. Well, for hundreds of years, a provision in the law had been there. Does anybody want to guess from the giving of the law of Moses until the day Jesus showed up, how many lepers came forward and said that they thought they were cured? Zero. But God included that as a provision. And listen, God, God didn't just throw that in there because he's like, yeah, you know, Leviticus could use a couple extra chapters. Like he put that in there intentionally for a reason. And so the rabbis began to identify and say, there must be someone that's coming. The Messiah must finally be the one that's able to do that. And in Matthew chapter 8, Jesus heals this guy. But not only does he heal him, he sends him to go jump through the hoops and go before the priest and follow the provision in the law because he knew following what the law said would make that link between the Messiah and the belief that the Messiah would be able to cure leprosy. And so you see all of that taking place in Matthew 8 and 9. Matthew is declaring that Jesus possesses absolute authority. And then in 8 and 9, he's saying, here's the case. Here's why we believe it. Here's the things that we can cling to. Here's the things that we know. And then in Matthew 10 is the second pillar of teaching where Jesus sends out the 12. He only sends the 12 out to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This was important because in order for the gospel to advance to the rest of the world, it had to originate among the Jews, and it was the rejection of the Jews as a nation, not individually. The, je the rejection of the Jews as a nation, as a religious establishment, that then opened the door for the gospel to spread to the rest of the world. And in Matthew 11 and 12, after the sending of the 12, this is the critical point where we see the national rejection of Jesus as the Messiah. And while the Jewish nation rejected Jesus, it did not mean that individuals rejected him. Individuals were still given an opportunity to follow. The disciples were Jewish. Many of the, the first century followers were Jewish. So it wasn't that Jews rejected Jesus. It was the nation that rejected Jesus. And then something interesting happens in Matthew 13. In Matthew 13, there's just a bunch of parables, a bunch of stories. In Matthew 13, Jesus begins to change the way he speaks about the kingdom. No longer using plain language, now he begins to use what are known as parables. A parable is simply something, it's, the word means to, to place beside, to cast alongside. It's taking one thing that's known and placing it along something that's unknown and using the known as a way to, to compare. It's kind of like taking an, an illustration, like I'll tell stories about my family, stories about my life, and it's just a story, but, there's a, but we're able to draw out a, a, a deeper meaning from that story. So Jesus would tell these stories. It was one of the most common forms of communicating in the first century was you would do this through parables, through, through stories. But Jesus began to teach in stories to conceal the truth from those who refused to believe the obvious. But he did it in such a way where he would leave the truth seekers longing for more. And they would seek for more. They would seek for a greater level of understanding. You'd see the disciples go to Jesus and say, Great story, Jesus, but what did that actually mean? And Jesus would then take them to, to the deeper meaning. But it's important walking through Matthew the way we do, because without that, Matthew 13, to be honest with you, just kind of seems like a weird chapter. 
Like, it's a bunch of stories just sort of in the middle of the book, and it's like, what are these stories about? Like, telling a story about a woman baking bread and some guy selling everything he has and buying a field, and without the context of understanding where, where we've been up until that point, Matthew chapter 13 is just a bunch of parables. But when you understand that those parables are there to show the shift in Jesus' teaching, that he is no longer openly revealing the kingdom, he is now concealing the kingdom from those who don't want to believe the truth, you read it a little bit, a little bit differently. And then in Matthew chapter 14 and beyond, as Jesus' focus shifts to raising up the disciples, the kingdom has been rejected by the Jews, which was what was going to happen all along. And now Jesus is going to shift his focus to raising up the disciples to be the ones that would champion his mission to reach the world. When you read the, the miracles that, that take place in Matthew 14 and beyond, oftentimes they just read different. Like the feeding of the 5,000, I, I personally don't think the feeding of the 5,000 was for the 5,000. I think it was for the 12 disciples. Because Jesus is dialoguing with them and he's asking them questions. He's drawing out from them what they believe. He's drawing out of them their unbelief. And he's trying to point them to the belief and the understanding that he is the source. With him, they can do everything, but without him, they can do nothing. And so Jesus is putting them in these situations as he's performing miracles, but he's saying, hey guys, it's not just me performing miracles, like, you, let, like let's figure this out together. And you can see him raising them up to prepare to be the ones that would champion his mission to reach the world. Chapter 18 is where Jesus teaches us about living relationally as a church. The gospel makes us family. Man, family is messy. Family is frustrating. Family is disappointing. Jesus says, but yet we still have to live differently. We still have to fight to forgive one another. We still have to fight to, to walk in unity. We don't give up on each other. We fight for each other. And so for 20 chapters, Matthew has been wringing this out like a, like a wet sponge, wringing out all of these truths about who Jesus is, truths about the Messiah. We've been getting glimpses into what the kingdom looks like. And Matthew has been making his case that Jesus is the sovereign king. And in Matthew 16, in the last six months before Jesus would leave this earth, he's been with his disciples for two and a half to three years at this point. They've seen the miracles. They've witnessed him teach with authority. They, they've seen everything. They've seen the, the nation reject Jesus. And with just a few months to go, he pulls them in. In Matthew chapter 16, he asks them the question, uh, it, says then, um, it says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? He asks a very general question. Like, what are you hearing? What's the word on the street? I think it's an important question for you and I to consider today because what, do, because what we believe about Jesus for a lot of us has is, is been influenced by what others believe about him. Like, how were you raised? What did your parents teach you to believe? What do your parents believe? What do the people in your circle of influence say or think about Jesus? For as long as you've been at Generation, what am I telling you about him? What have you been taught in school or college? What is media and culture? What do they say and think? Jesus says, let's, ask, let's start with the general question. What do people, who do people say that I am? And then in verse 15, he makes it more personal. He says, then he asks them, but who do you say that I am? He starts with the general question, 
But then he moves to a personal question. I'll be honest with you, general questions for me are much more fun to answer than personal. Like in our community groups, we all prefer the general. How does this passage speak to everyone? You know, the famous they, what are they saying? What are they thinking? I don't know about you, but I like to, to tuck myself somewhere in the answer of they. So it's like I'm really talking about me, but I'll lump a bunch of other people in there so I don't feel like I'm being exposed. And so we prefer the general question. And Jesus asks a very specific and a very personal question because following Jesus is not general. Following Jesus is personal. Following Jesus is not a group decision. Following Jesus is a me decision. Your mom and your dad's faith was not transferred to you. You don't inherit it. Those of us who are parents now, no matter how hard we try, we can't make our kids believe. And what everyone else believes about Jesus doesn't determine whether or not you follow him. Only what you believe. It's like Bigfoot. Right? What everybody else believes about Bigfoot doesn't matter. It's what you believe about Bigfoot. And whatever, every, what everyone else believes about Jesus doesn't matter. It's only what you believe. Because you're not going to follow Jesus because someone else believes in Jesus. You're going to follow Jesus because you believe in Jesus. And he asks the disciples, after all that they've seen, he says, now, with just a few months to go, what do you say? What do you think? What do you believe? And Peter, who is known to run off at the mouth and often speak and then think, says something that is so profound and so true and so powerful. In verse 16, it says, Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Peter says, in light of what I've seen and what I've heard and what I've experienced, in spite of the fact that everyone else around me, for the most part, is saying, you're not the guy, I believe that you are the guy. I believe that you are the Christ, the chosen one, the anointed one. And you are the son of the living God. Peter, this is the first time Peter is openly declaring that Jesus is not just a man. Remember in the boat, they were like, what kind of man is this? And now Peter is saying, oh, you're, you are not a man. You are not of this earth. You are divine. You came to establish a kingdom that is not of this earth. He says, you are not just a man, and the kingdom that you came to establish is nothing that man could make up, which is the entire point that Matthew is making all throughout this book, that Jesus is the guy. And just as the Jews were confronted with the question of who do we say that Jesus is, so too we are confronted with the question. It's 2,000 years later, but the question is, is the same today. Who do you believe that Jesus is? Because what you believe about who Jesus is will shape how you live your life. What you believe about Jesus will determine whether or not you follow him. And, and listen, if, if Jesus is just a good man, if he's a powerful teacher, then he's real and his teaching will impact us to some extent. If he's just a good teacher, then he's tweetable. He's like C.S. Lewis or Dr. Martin Luther King or for me, Michael Scott. If he's just a man, 
then let's enjoy his teaching. Let's benefit from, from his teaching. If he's just a humanitarian, then he's inspirational, like Mother Teresa or Gandhi. If he's just a man, then yes, let's honor his memory. I'm all about a day off. Let's celebrate his birthday. Sit around the tree, exchange some presents, enjoy the day off and time off with our family. But if he's just a man on December 26th, we turn the page and we move on. But if Matthew is right, if what Peter declared is true, then we don't move on. We bow down. We don't admire. We adore. We don't attend a weekly service. We completely alter our lives in pursuit of him. If he is the Christ, the son of the living God, then he's worth giving up everything for. If he's the son of the living God, he's the pearl of great price. He's the treasure in the field that you sell everything you have in order to purchase because that treasure is there. You sell everything, you sacrifice everything. Everything, when it comes to Jesus, is worth it. I'll never forget the first time I saw uh, Jen, my wife. We were 16 years old. And I knew that it didn't matter what it took. I was going to meet her. She was going to be my girlfriend. I even told my sister at 16 years old that I was going to marry her. I don't care what it takes. She's coming home with me. In the front seat or the trunk. <laughs> it, it, I guess I'm telling it, it feels like very stalkerish. Um, uh, but I knew very quickly that she was worth whatever risk and sacrifice would come with spending the rest of my life with her. And I want to tell you this morning that Jesus is worth the risk and the sacrifice. Jesus is the guy. Jesus is the king. And he laid down the gauntlet a couple verses later when he said, Jesus said to his disciples, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. If you believe he's the guy, if you believe he's the king and possesses absolute power and authority, there's only one option, and that is complete in total surrender. This morning, you can say yes to Jesus today. You can say yes to Jesus as Savior. Think of the conversation Jesus had in John chapter 3 with a man named Nicodemus. He told Nicodemus, you must be born again. Every one of us in this room has been born physically, but not every one of us has been reborn spiritually. And in John 3, 16 and 17, in this conversation, Jesus says to him, he says, for this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world not to judge the world but to save the world through him. Today you can say yes to Jesus' offer of eternal life. Today you can say yes, I believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Yes, I believe that Jesus is the king. 
In Romans 10, it makes it very simple for us. It says that, that we believe. We believe in our heart that Jesus lived, died, was buried, and rose again to pay for our sins and to reconcile us back to God. Right now where you're sitting, do you believe that to be true? We're told that we believe it to be true in our hearts and then we confess it with our mouth. You tell God right now where you're sitting in your own words, you simply tell him, I believe that to be true. I believe that Jesus is the answer. I believe that Jesus is the guy. I believe that Jesus died to pay for my sins and it's only through him and him alone that I can come to you and I can be reconciled to you. We believe that and then the Bible says when we believe it and confess it, it says that we're saved. Saved is a very churchy word. You'll hear it thrown around. But what does it mean? It means that we, were, that we were destined to be eternally separated from God because of our sin. But because of Jesus and when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, we are saved, meaning we are no longer eternally separated from God. We are saved from eternal separation and we are eternally reconciled. And you can say yes to that today. Jesus is the guy Jesus is the king. And today we're going to celebrate with some who have said yes. Today we're going to do what we call baptism. Um, we're going to have some people who've said yes to following Jesus, and they're going public with their faith. Baptism doesn't save you. Like confession and belief, that's what saves us. Baptism is just a symbol to everybody that you have been. And this may look different than anything you've experienced before. But I want you to know this morning that, that, that we believe in what this is about. You may think it's weird. We may look like the Sasquatch people to you. And you may leave here today going, man, that was weird. But you will leave here today knowing without question that we are all in and we absolutely believe it. And so what happens today when we baptize people is we're asking them, have you said yes to following Jesus? Then we baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, symbolic of the death and then the new life in Christ, the new, the new birth in Christ. So I'm going to have you guys stand with me. I'm going to pray. And then I want you to celebrate with us. Uh, you can, uh, I, I get this question sometimes, like, is it okay to say amen? Paul, is it okay to say amen here? Yes. It's okay. You can say amen. Uh, you can clap. You guys know how to clap. You can cheer. Like, this, this, this is a celebration. This is not a funeral. Remember, we're celebrating the death to life, not just the death. So we don't have to be somber. We can be celebratory. Uh, whatever you want to do, this is, this is going to be a time uh, to do that together. So I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. And in a couple minutes, you'll see, uh, you'll see that take place over here to my left uh, and to your right. So let's pray. Jesus, you are here. Oh, I pray that we would believe that. So many times we invite you into space and you're like, I'm already there. Man, how it reshapes everything about our lives when we just believe that you're already where you say you are. God, would we believe it? Would we sense it? Would we feel it? Jesus, be glorified. You are the king. This is your kingdom. Everything we're about to do is simply an act of praise and worship to you. You get all the glory for it. We pray this, Jesus, in your name.